0: Hey, Insomniacs, welcome back to another episode of the Knight Rider podcast. I'm so pleased to welcome our special guest for this episode, Douglas Kruger. Douglas is the author of six books, including the highly acclaimed Own Your Industry, How to Position Yourself as an Expert. He is a multiple award-winning speaker. His clients include senior management at companies like Multi-Choice, BMW, Liberty and HP. In 2015, Liberty and Multi-Choice booked him for their multi-city roadshows and Douglas's results were so exceptional that in 2016, both organisations insisted on using him again. In 2016, in honour of his excellence in his craft, Douglas was inducted into the Speakers Hall of Fame by his chapter of the Professional Speakers Association. In 2018, he was granted the Acclaimed Certified Speaking Professional designation by the National Speakers Association in America, the highest earned award granted by this international body and held only only by 12% of speakers globally. But this is his first foray into fiction and he is promoting his debut novel on my podcast called The Man Who Never Was. It sounds so exciting and I love chatting with him about it. I'll put all his links in the description below. You can also watch our episode on YouTube. Just search The Night Writer Podcast and don't forget to like and subscribe. So enjoy and I will see you in the next one. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Night Writer Podcast. I'm really pleased to introduce today's guest, Douglas Kruger. Douglas is a acclaimed and best-selling author and YouTuber and public speaker. Hi Douglas, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, pleasure to be with you. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Um, so you're here to promote, about your, uh, to promote your debut novel, The Man That Never Was, or The Man Who Never Was, sorry. Um, and you were, have a background in writing business books, so nonfiction, and this is your first fictional novel. Is that right
1: yeah it's a bit of a strange crossover isn't it I'm, I'm up to uh, 12 nonfiction books now and uh, book number 13 is uh, is fiction which is which is a very weird thing to do um, but I suppose looking back over the uh, the nonfiction books that I, I have written I try to use storytelling and theater of the mind to a great extent So it's a, it's a comfortable language for me to speak but uh, but it's a it's a great departure uh, and I must say I was really quite pleased that the publisher was was even willing to entertain it because from a, a branding point of view it's so it's an odd thing to do
0: yeah I mean it was quite a I mean I'm sure it would be a risk but um, if you're I mean you're used to writing and again working to deadlines as well which I know is a a problem for a lot of writers yeah Yeah. Um, so how was the creative process behind writing this in comparison to your other books
1: immensely satisfying. Um, When you write something in nonfiction, typically what you do is you begin with a notion, something to do with, say, a a business idea, and then you'll end up doing a, a great deal of research around what's already known on that topic? I mean, uh, just in sort of basic terms, if you were speaking about innovation, you'd have to ask, what's Elon Musk doing in this world? What are Apple or Mercedes doing in that universe? And what are the sort of known principles? And then your job as an author is to take it slightly further. This is an entirely different universe. You have this sort of wide open space where really the only criterion are can you get through to people emotionally and are you going to tell an interesting story and in the case of this particular one it's such an abstract idea that i i sort of invented a whole universe in which the rules were entirely mine so very satisfying to do Uh, and at the same time as that it's quite a it's a bit of an emotional gut punch of a story, so it was heavy going. I had times where my wife would walk past and say, are you sniffing at your computer screen? It's like, no, nah, it's just, just sinuses, you know, nothing wrong with me. Um, but they always say, you know, no tears in the writer, no tears in the reader. So if I'm feeling it, hopefully it comes through in the prose.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of my biggest goals is to make the audience cry, because if they don't, I <laughs> haven't
1: done
0: the- <laughs>
1: yeah. It's kind of psychopathic, isn't it? It's like we're yeah. trying to hurt people on purpose.
0: Because so when I watch my plays, I'm, I'm sort of in the background. And I'm watching the audience, and they're watching it, and some of them are wiping away tears, and I'm like, "Yeah."
1: <laughs> and in fact, actually, I mean, you mentioned plays. It's 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 wonderful to have that sense of live feedback. Uh, and as a result of the business books, I I did a fair amount of speaking as well. That that's kind of my background, and you do get that wonderful sense of the immediacy of feedback from an audience. And I think it's um it's possibly invaluable. And and perhaps not a lot of writers get to experience that. We tend to be an introverted bunch and we we don't often associate the idea of being on a stage or speaking to real human beings with the world of writing. But it's actually amazing how well they go together, uh, how much you can learn about playing with and manipulating emotions from that that immediate uh, feedback. It's it's invaluable.
0: Yeah, I think also because, My background was, uh, when I was studying writing, it was books so it was prose and prose and poetry all in my head. But then when I was in the, working in the world of theatre, um, you've got other people on board, like actors and directors. Yeah. And they're all taking your universe and things to heart and then showing it. It's, and it's very raw. And I, I find myself just kind of hiding. I just don't want to be in front of it. <laughs> so in performances, because you're exposing your whole world into, this, and, and, and everyone's watching it. Um, yeah. Did you feel that when you were when this the book finally got published and and it was being released to the public?
1: Yes, very much so, and and indeed prior to that as well. I I worked with an editor who had a couple of suggestions which once I heard them I, I actually had to sit back and say you are one hundred percent right, and um, I, I'm very glad to have had someone who who came at the story with a fresh perspective, and was able to see just a, a couple of subtle nuances that needed a bit of changing and trimming around the edges and so forth. And um, at, at the end of the book, I actually have a little sort of note saying uh, you're a genius and thank you for your input because it, it really made a huge difference. I suspect the, the thing there, of course, and it's hard for us, is, is to let go of pride a little bit and, and let someone speak back to you. Of course, at the end of the day, from the writer's perspective, it's still your baby. You, you can say no to the advice, uh, but it's well worth hearing it. And I think in this case, it, it really helped to make the story just that little bit better.
0: Yeah, I think I completely agree because I I feel the same. You need someone to, someone else who doesn't really know it because at the end of the day yeah. for it's for people who don't know you. So yes. if someone's saying, that I don't, not feeling this or, or this, um, and then you actually agree with it because you realise they're speaking to something, some instinct you just know was always yeah. there, but you needed someone else to confirm it for you. Yeah. It's quite, I mean, I know it's really bad, it's really lazy, isn't it? But you're like, yeah, thanks for that and I'll do that. But then on the other hand, there are, you know, writers and, I've dealt with this, I know loads of writers have that have editors that kind of will say change it because yeah. of this, this and that reason um, and sometimes you have to put it back, no, it's mine. <laughs> yes.
1: yeah.
0: I mean, have you ever experienced that side of it? or? or Fortunately,
1: you- no, but, but I, I see where, where, you know, how that can sort of play out. I mean, from the, the editor's perspective, uh, and especially from the publisher's perspective, they, they know which formulas work. Um, and of course, it's a huge leap of faith to have an author come to you and say, yes, I get that the formula works, but this is something slightly different. It's not quite the formula. But sometimes those those weirder books are the ones that really become something special for people. Um, and while I see the value of understanding the formulas that work? I. My sort of own feeling is that I would rather appeal deeply to a very small group of people than sort of be broadly generically, um, appeal to people generically. And and it's a hard line to, to walk, but uh, I suppose it's it's always going to be a series of small judgment calls all along the, the creative process.
0: I'm really glad you said that, actually, because I'm sort of, my director has advised me at the moment to change a script we've been working on for years um, huh? in terms of putting my own cultural stamp on it and I think there was the the topic of well do I go for the broader market of who or do I do my own thing and when I do that I'll become a better writer for it because it's what I know and what you just said I thought I should do what's best for the the story and what I can do the story I can tell as honestly as possible Um, thank you for that it's like you're you're magic I know you're a public speaker but it's like wow
1: If it doesn't work, just don't tell people you got the idea from me.
0: No, it's just going <laughs> to. I must great. say, I,
1: I'm sometimes you know... <laughs> grateful. I, I'm occasionally grateful for some of the weirder books that I come across. I mean, I just give you an example off the top of my head. Um, I've read a fair amount of Beautiful. Dean Koontz's. Yeah, uh, Dean Kuntz's thrillers and 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 so on. I've, I've read quite a fair amount over the last couple of years. And there was one that I picked up in particular called I think it was Seventy Seven Shadow Street, and it's one of those stories where. He keeps you guessing right till the end. I mean, you really have no idea what's going on. Once you understand what's happening in this thing, I I sat back almost in awe and I thought, I can't believe that a a storyteller would have the courage to do something that strange, to take such a a bizarre notion and follow it from one end to the other. But he did. And it may not be his best-selling book. But to me, I think it's one of his best. And there's something that appeals to me about this courage to follow a story out into the dark, out into the mist, when it is a bizarre concept. And I, I think sometimes those become the very best stories.
0: Yeah, it does take a lot of courage to do that because I think they, he probably must've got turned down, that concept must've been turned down by people. Yeah. I don't understand this, what is it? Um, yeah but it just takes one and then word of mouth and everyone. And, you know, I think the public need to be given some credit of being smart and-
1: Yes, <laughs> absolutely.
0: Actually, yeah, what it is. I, I believe
1: that to a huge extent. I think the best production in any genre is always when you have faith in your audience. Um, I always think of, um, with, with, with that idea, I always think of sitcoms and there's this kind of uh, tendency to, to write to the lowest common denominator, but the most popular sitcom of possibly of all time was Frasier and that was, that's a very intellectual sitcom. I mean, it's sort of wordplay and psychology and so forth and it's written at a very high level and at a stage it was the the most popular show in the world and i think that says exactly what you're saying it's when you when you don't sort of patronize your audience and you credit them with that that bit of intelligence you're you're creating something a bit more special uh, and and it creates i think a better relationship between the storyteller and the audience
0: yeah i i completely agree because i think especially now everyone wants to like do the next thing or be yeah. the next whatever market there is, I know, Game of Thrones, maybe, I don't know, but, um, or fantasy genre, they want to write a fantasy book even if, it, if they can't write fantasy and then they'll push themselves to do it. Um, I think, you, yeah, I, think, I completely agree. I think you should write what you know or write what you want to write even and that will just speak, the work will just speak. And they'll find something in that, in yeah. the characters as well that you create. Um, yes. So what's your novel about?
1: Okay, so let, let's get strange, shall we? <laughs> this this is a very unusual concept. Um, and in fact, I'll actually, in, in explaining the novel, I'll, I'll tell you how, how I got the idea and sort of where I started. I started at the end. In fact, the, the idea came for the very last page. Um, and it, it came to me almost sort of full-formed, where I had this sort of goosebumps moment where I thought, imagine someone ending a book that way. And then I thought to myself, well, you know, if I don't do it, whoever will? I mean, I've, I've just sort of had this weird idea how would I do that? And I then had to work backwards and sort of set up the dominoes in order to have that final one fall over. And it's quite a tricky one to talk about because the whole crux of this thing is what happens on the very last page. And it's a bit of a shocker. Um, But I can tell you how I then lead up to it. So what happens in the story is our main character actually passes away in the first chapter. And most of it is the, the hero in heaven looking back on his family. So think of If you think of the formula for the old uh, Christmas carol, Scrooge, that one starts off, the first line is Marley was dead to begin with, and then he's haunted by three ghosts. This one kind of takes the the structural approach that the main character is dead to begin with, and he gets three opportunities to look back in on his family. He gets the chance to eavesdrop on them from beyond the grave. Uh, There's an interesting question there that sort of, would you choose to, if you could, you can't affect their lives. You can't change what you see. You're only allowed to look. Would you decide to take that opportunity and look in on them? He decides that the answer is yes, and he looks in on uh, on his son's life over three different occasions. Now, what happens uh, as a result of that? He, he's he's horrified by what he sees. I mean, the, the small child that he didn't get to raise goes off on a dark path. And the question for him becomes, how on earth can he change it? Because you can't change someone else's life after you've passed away. You, uh, you can't affect free will from beyond the grave. So what can he do? And the entire story is essentially that he finds a loophole. Um, and um, the, the question then becomes, if you could undo your, your own life in order to redeem the life of your child, would you choose to do so? And that's the whole sort of um, uh, twist behind the man who never was.
0: Oh, wow. I mean, there's so much to unpack here. (laughs) Like, so much.
1: It's it's a strange story.
0: So, if um, I'm just going to be really presumptuous here, but when you said the sun goes off on a dark path, I assume yeah. that it's because he's lost his father as a kid.
1: Yes, that's the beginning. The father has, in fact, um, he's essentially a good person, but he's human. He's made mistakes in his past. And some of his mistakes catch up with his son, and there's nothing he can do about that. Um, and you have these sort of moments of, of embarrassment and of, of some degree of sort of mortal horror where he looks back in on things he'd forgotten about in his own life, catching up with his child later on when there's nothing he can do about it. And that creates the sort of... this. This guilt and this this desire to try to do something about it, but yes, his son's life goes quite dark and quite criminal, um, and his question then becomes, and it's sort of a petition in heaven: is how can I change this? What can I do about it? And he he stumbles upon this loophole, this thing that has never been done before. Uh, so yeah, that that's the entire setup to the thing. Um, I, I you can possibly tell from my accent, I I'm, I was born in South Africa, um, and the book itself is not written in any particular location. So we do have scenes on earth, but they're written in a, in a very sort of dreamy, generic way where they're in the backyard, they're under a bridge, they're in places that could be anywhere. If you grew up like myself in Johannesburg, you would see that setting. If you grew up in London, your your bridge would, would have London tones to it. Okay. If you're, you're American, you would read it that way. It never specifies. So the whole idea is that, the book is supposed to be universally human and you could read it anywhere. It's more about what happens after the main character dies than about what he went through on earth.
0: Okay, so you're basically giving the reader a choice as to where it's yeah. set. Oh, yes. it's, it's Yeah, yeah. It's I, like, try, okay. I
1: try to give as, as many imaginary cues as I can that you would create a picture, but, but also sufficiently few that I don't overwhelm you with my picture. Uh, and, I, and it's, a, it's a quite a tricky line to, to, to walk, but, but it can be done.
0: And, and, because I remember you said uh, you create, it's your own universe,
1: obviously.
0: Um, Did you have any idea of how you would create the heaven?
1: Yes, Um, it's set against what we might call very loosely a Christian assumption of heaven. Um, I have angels in my story, I have a heaven, um, and so forth but it's not what you would call doctrinally perfect. Uh, I mean, you you could really argue this one from a religious perspective, and I've intentionally gone looking for a loophole in order to tell the story. So those are the kind of background assumptions to it. but the real sort of heart and soul of this thing is just the simple relationship between a dad and his boy. And um, I start off with this incredibly close bond between the two of them and the conversations they have out under the stars, talking about life, talking about their fears and their hopes and so forth. And in doing that, you, you set up the emotion for the rest of the book. Um, so it's, it's actually, in, in one sense, it's a very abstract and strange story. In another sense, it's a very simple little tale of the love of a dad for his son.
0: I mean, yeah, it's quite, it, sounds, it sounds quite sad. I mean, when you set up the scene, knowing what happens. Yeah. And also, I'm so envious that you managed to get the ending scene in your head. I'm just like, because <laughs> you
1: he's,
0: he's, he's, he might just have like the beginning or the end, and then yeah. or, but nothing in the middle. But I suppose if you start with the end, then you can work backwards and you've got. Yes. Like, uh, People right. always
1: ask authors, you know, where, where do you get your ideas? And I mean, I, you know, sometimes you have an idea for a beginning and you follow it. Sometimes you have an idea for an ending and then you set it up. Um, I, I think the key to it is that the thing that moves you, you go, wow, imagine if. Take that, that strange idea, put it down on paper and start playing with it. I think most creative people do have those, those thoughts, those ideas, those little picture of a scenario in their minds. I think the mistake is possibly just not recording it. Um, and I know sometimes I've, I've had instances where I'll be walking down a road or at gym or something. And one of those weird little ideas for just a picture of a scene or a bit of a story kind of pops into your head and starts percolating for a while. And I know that if I don't write it down immediately, I forget it. Mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll send myself a note or send myself an email. And When I read it later, it really sounds like a, a letter from a stranger. And that, what that tells me is that I would have forgotten it if I hadn't written it down there and then. So I I suspect that's, I mean, linking back to what I said about the Dean Kuhn story, it's just remembering to take those odd notions and record them. And then I think it's the courage to to sit down and go, how do I actually follow through and write an entire story about this? And it's, it's a difficult set of emotions to work through because it really feels like you're walking out into the mist with no signposts. When you write the story, you don't know if you're doing something worthwhile. And it's a lot of hours and a lot of energy to invest into something that might be absolute rubbish. You know? <laughs> but that, that's the process. And I think you slowly get more and more comfortable with it.
0: Yeah, because I was going to ask about your writing process. Are you a storyboarder? Are you sort of a web kind of mind map person? Or do you yeah. write, just sit down and write it? and see Well, I'm,
1: I'm somewhere in between the sort of the seat of your pantser and the um, and the heavy plotter i like to have a an outline and a plot But when I begin, I don't necessarily like to know how it's going to end. And and let me just qualify that by saying I've now written three more novels since this one. Having written this one, I decided, well, if they've said yes, let's get the next one ready and the one after that and so forth. Um, And I'm fairly fast with with the process because I've I've written several books before. So it's it's kind of a rhythm that I'm I'm now into. So with the unpublished ones that I've I've written now, um, I loosely plot them, but I allow enough scope so that I myself am surprised by what happens halfway through, in the end, etc. Uh, the one that I'm just writing now is a, is a massive one. But this little guy over here is only about 42,000 words, so it's a small story. The one I'm putting the finishing touches to now is about 125,000, and when I set out, I knew loosely what was going to happen, but I didn't know if my character was going to survive or not. Okay. I'm now writing the last chapter, and I'm clear on what happens to him. Um, so I, I'm kind of in between the points of heavy planning and just right by the seat of your pants. Um, in terms of the physical process, I'm relatively disciplined in getting between, say, 1,000 to 2,000 words a day. If I have a deadline coming up, I can go north of four or 5,000 words, but it's very rare that I do that two or three days running.
0: I mean, you said... You, you um, you've already written. Sorry, because I was just in shock you've already written other books. Like again, seething the jealousy.
1: I have no social life. I've got, I've got nothing else to do. No one ever calls me. There's nothing good on TV. So, <laughs> in, in all honesty, if you just produce say 500 to 1,000 words a day, um, in in the case of 500 words, if you're doing it every single day, in two months that's a book. If you're doing a thousand words a day. You can write a book in sort of month, month and a half. I mean, it really is quite doable. Um, so the question is really just how how consistent are you? And I think that's the key to to the productivity.
0: Uh, do you find yourself changing your mind when you're writing? As opposed, to, sometimes you'd have an outline and plan, but then when you actually start writing and starting getting the characters and the dialogues going, do you find it shifts?
1: Yes. And and a couple of thoughts on that one. The first one is uh, it's delightful when the characters start taking over. I know. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, th- I think we should as authors and and so on we should allow that. I mean, you if, if a character starts doing things you don't expect, you should let them because they've become real. They've taken on their own life and, and energy. Um, and the second sort of little insight again on that one comes again from Dean Koontz where you see if you read enough of his books that in several instances he's Taken the same idea, and he's gone in different directions, and I think that's what's happened there. He's written a book, and halfway through, he's gone, "Whoa, what if I did that instead?" And I suspect that he's probably taken out a little notepad and said, "Ah, idea for another book." Um, and what he then does is, several books later, he goes back and writes the other version of that same idea. Um, so I think that's that's one clever way of dealing with it.
0: That is actually a good point because sometimes um, you get you create new characters or or something would happen. And you think, actually, he's not a, he's not a supporting character. He's such a main yeah. character. I'm gonna keep him for a sequel yes. or something. Yeah. But I, wait, there's more. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. How much more can I milk this one? <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> it's about the creativity. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But but that book is a standalone, isn't it? Your first book is a standalone. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and I don't think that I, uh, in fact, I think it would ruin it if you had to do any kind of a follow-up or, or anything even thematically similar. Uh, my, my goal and desire is to write more sort of uh, earthbound, dark, twisty thrillers. Uh, so this, this one is almost literary in nature, and it's, um, it's a very strange story. I mean, it really is. I don't know that I'd ever have an idea for anything quite that odd again. Uh, So if if I keep going with with the novels, it might be like, there's this one, and then there are all the others that are totally different. Uh, And hopefully that's okay.
0: But that, yeah, that's good because it shows you're diverse as a writer as well, but you can write genres as well as non-fiction business books as well.
1: (laughs) (laughs) scatterbrained, yeah.
0: (laughs) Would you ever write uh, any, like a sequel series or? like a you know like um, like a detective story we just follow one character through different stories or like a family yeah
1: i would be interested to try it i i I haven't done it in the four books that i've written uh i suspect if i ever did do that the, the one thing i wouldn't want to do is to have say a policeman an fbi agent or or any of the sort of uh the stereotypical characters Doing that because it's so done. Uh, yeah. But if you if you did something else with it, um, I mean, just for example, the one that I've finished now is it's um it's somewhere between a thriller and a horror story about this guy coming out of um, he sort of discovered that for the last couple of years he's been stuck at home doing nothing, and something inside rebels and he decides he he wants to create this television show about weird experiences around the world. And to his own surprise, he actually gets this thing right and ends up traveling to different locations, doing these unusual experiences and kind of living as as fully as he can. Halfway through this, he gets haunted by something out in the sands in Namibia and that's kind of how the, the story progresses. But I suspect a character like that with a TV show like that, that could become a series. Now, I don't know if I'm going to, but I, I'd be interested in, in, in that kind of series rather than say a, a cop series.
0: Yeah, I would, I would be interested in that as well because it's definitely different and original. Yeah,
1: yeah some, something a little unusual.
0: Why are you drawn to Because I love thrillers and, and horror and all that kind of stuff because of the, just the dark side of humanity. I like writing about yeah. and exploring those characters and, and you know, I get asked by my own family, like, why don't you write a comedy or... Because <laughs> it's been, it's not, you know, it's a dark. Yeah. I find there's no real, like, I can't wring any drama out of it. Um, yeah. What attracts you to that kind of genre?
1: It's a hard one to answer when I, when I was eight and a half, nine years old, the first first full-scale novel that I read was Misery by Stephen King. Oh, okay. uh, and that, I mean, that probably messed me up for life so maybe that, that's the answer right there. Uh, but you know my wife and I still have like horror movies night on a Friday and we go and see if there's anything that can can actually like scare the living daylights out of us. And at the moment we've been, we've been kind of saying that, too many of the horror movies are a person moves into a house and things slowly start going wrong. Like there are hundreds of movies like that. It works, but it's the same thing over and over. Um, So we're quite delighted when someone comes up with something really different. Uh, And I think of great examples like uh, one one of my all-time favorite movies, let alone sort of scary story, is M. Night Shyamalan's The Village, which of course is actually a a weird one you have to watch that two or three times to get your head around what has actually happened um and, and you have to sort of undo your understanding after you've seen the twist at the end but that's a masterpiece and i think the ability to scare people with an unusual formula is is something darkly delightful and it's it's just always appealed to me
0: well he's he's known for that isn't he the twist yeah at the end. that um, weird
1: twist at the end yeah
0: the village that's not um that's not A remake of anything that's his original one no
1: that's that's his own one yes yeah and it's honestly it's it's a it's a very strange one in the sense that it's not just a a darn scary movie i mean it really is that 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 one will get the goosebumps going it's also beautiful once you understand what's actually going on there and you watch it again it's it's a story of deep humanity i i I actually think it's one of the most underrated movies ever made it's it's probably my all-time favorite the village yeah
0: um, have you seen Have you seen all of his movies?
1: I, I, as far as I know, yes. Yeah. Um, I may I, have missed one or two, but I don't think so.
0: I, uh, my favourite, um, this is quite underrated, I think, I've forgotten what it's actually called, but it's about the two kids who visit their grandparents.
1: Oh, The Visit, yes. Yeah, or The Visit, yeah. yeah.
0: I, it was, oh, that was so good. And I remember what that twist was. Twist. It's a typical yes. Like and you
1: know, I mean, I've, I've got goosebumps down my arm here. and The f- scene I'm thinking of is the small boy opening the door and the old lady standing there, quite naked, scratching at the walls. Yeah, scratching I at mean...
0: the walls. <laughs> <laughs> and also the way it's done, it's done. It's filmed on camera, like an actual documentary style. Yeah, documentary. it's almost
1: Blair Witch Project style, where it's like a home video.
0: I I thought I loved that. I thought that was fun Yeah.
1: His philosophy is he says he takes a B movie concept, something really simple, but he gives it an A movie treatment. So he's doing very simple ideas, but he's he's doing them artfully. Yeah. Um, he doesn't see himself as sort of a, a cheap movie maker. He, t- he takes a simple idea, but he brings the art to it. And I think that's quite a quite a cool philosophy.
0: Yeah, that is that's very interesting. <laughs> yeah, you're giving it a chance, like simple ideas, but actually, all it takes really is just a simple idea, and you can expand on that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, in the in the world of sort of the you know the action movie genre, it's like there are a thousand action movies, and there's Die Hard. Uh, so he he's kind of taking that approach. He's saying, sure, it's a simple little scary movie, but it's the Die Hard of simple little scary movies, and I, I think that's why it works.
0: <laughs> yes. And while talking about horror movies, I mean, I mean, you obviously share a name with
1: <laughs> Kruger. <laughs> <all your competitors. laughs> yes. It's funny, Every uh, different places in the world, you, you get different reactions. In South Africa, there was a past president called Paul Kruger. So growing up, it was always, oh, you're Paul Kruger, you know, great wit. If you go to the United States or the UK, it's always, ah, Freddy Kruger. So it's <laughs> a you know, different frame of reference. But yeah, not, another great horror classic.
0: Well, I mean, cause we're talking about horror movies. Um what what helps make it great is the visuals and it just jumping out and the music because you're watching it. Yeah. I suppose writing a book um, and again this has to acquire some skill is hard because you don't have that. You have to yeah. put everything on page. Yes. And I've read obviously Stephen King, which he does a brilliant job of that. And yeah. um, Susan Hill with um, I think it was The Woman in Black. Yeah, that was. I, I must I must take a
1: look at that then. Susan yeah. Hill, The Woman in Black. Yeah. Okay.
0: Um, I think it's Susan Hill. I'll, 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 I'll go
1: and have a look for that.
0: <laughs> um, but she's yeah, that's now on stage as well, and they do that really well. There's a film, but if the book is um, it's so much better because. But she really creates that that feeling and that atmosphere. Yes. Do you find that? Um, Easy or challenging to do? Ah, you
1: know, it, it's interesting you should ask that, and then reference Stephen King. The the only time I found that I've ever seen that done outstandingly was in the book version of It, and in fact, they actually did a great version of that scene in the movie as well. C- credit to them, they pulled it off very well. In the book, the the female character, as an older person, not not the not the kid version, the the grown up version, she goes back home and visits. Um, what used to be her old home. And it's this. I actually go goosebumps just thinking about it. It's the scene where she walks in and there's an old lady in that apartment now. And the old lady says, oh, I'm sorry, you know, your dad passed away a long time ago, but would you like to have a look at your, your old home? And in she comes and the old lady makes her a cup of tea and it slowly degenerates. And I think it was one of the most brilliantly effective scenes I have ever seen in writing. It's the only time I've ever been scared reading a book. It starts off with, the lady puts down the cup of tea and she smiles. And, and our main character looks at her and thinks, did she have bad teeth when I arrived? And then it's the next thing. And it's, the, and it's slowly the whole thing just degenerates around her. Now, that idea... Um, was the sort of the informing effect for the one I've just written now. I mentioned this idea of the guy who does the show around the world going to interesting places. Yeah. I wanted to see if I could take that, that way of scaring an audience and do something similar in a different story. And it's this idea of the scene degenerating slowly around you. And the main character, not quite sure whether this is real or not because it's subtle things at first. It's a calendar on a wall that's now slightly wrong and you can't quite remember how it should be and the sort of degeneration all around you. I found that terrifying in the book um, and, and I wanted to see if I could do it myself so I don't know hopefully I'll pull it off as well.
0: I guess the way to, I mean it's the way to do that is to really get into the mindset of the character as if you were actually there and think about what makes you scared and then yeah. just write whatever thoughts yes. are coming out. And
1: you have gotta be quite relentless with that as well. I mean like this one here, the, the Man Who Never Was, was in some ways quite a difficult one to write because there are, there are things that I, uh, they are so harsh. That you, you almost, as the author, you have to force yourself to put it onto the page and go, this is what we're trying to achieve with the book. Yes, it's, it's heavy going, but, but you, you, you write it anyway. Uh, and I wonder if there isn't something of the psychopath to to effect of writing. You, know? <laughs> you, you have to be able to do yeah. things that are horrific to your reader. Uh, and you have to do it with sort of courage and conviction.
0: But then that does invoke emotion doesn't it? Yeah. Like when yes. you scare, I mean, you can make them cry, but then when you make them sort of scream or, or wanna run and hide, yeah. yeah, then that would really make them wanna, yeah, that invokes some kind of something in them.
1: Yeah, and it's there's some interesting technique behind that. You've gotta start by making them care about the character. Uh, if your reader doesn't care about the character, then, then so what when, when, when the big thing happens? Yeah. Uh, and at the same time, you also have to sneak up on the reader with the big thing that happens. So, I mean, for example, if you've got a, a scary scene coming up, you maybe have to start it with a character thinking about something completely different and and almost trick the, the 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 reading audience into looking that way until you get to to have them look the other way. And that takes quite some art form as well. A lot of effective writing with twists and turns is kind of smoke and mirrors. It's look over here, ah, oh, boo. Uh, and it's, uh, it takes a bit yeah. of practice.
0: Yeah. I agree. It has to be like a complete, I think the best way you can hone those skills is just writing about it or read and reading as yeah. much. Um, it, it was Susan Hill. <laughs> it okay. was, it, it yeah. is Susan Hill. And she's, uh, she writes horror, uh, horror books. And I remember cause I, I actually read another horror book of hers, which is about a creepy doll, which okay. I, I find. Yeah. I find those things. Those cool. kinds of stories really,
1: really. So would that be the same movie that um, the guy from Harry Potter, Daniel yes. Radd starred in? Oh, that was a good movie as that well. I, oh, yeah, I can see how the book would be. I, I must definitely find it.
0: I saw the stage play as well in London because that's been running for, I think, about 30 years now.
1: Right. Yeah. Nice.
0: The, I mean, that's just, they're basically, like, she's got the, the three, the movie, the play, and the book.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. What a pleasure. How cool to be able to see your core idea in three different manifestations like I that. Know. It must be so satisfying.
0: I mean, that's, I think that's probably, like, the writer's ultimate. ultimate yeah. Thing.
1: Absolutely, yeah
0: because I, I get thrilled watching it on watching my stuff on stage but also like I asked writers this how does it feel to have your published book in your yeah. yeah yeah yes I mean, oh, yeah. This before like, like all the other books but I mean this one the
1: yeah no what a feeling I mean it really is something else Um and my my sort of hope is that this one kind of plays with your mind for a couple of weeks after you put it down. Uh, And I've had one or two readers actually get hold of me and say that and that that to me was exactly what I was after. Um, It's it's the kind of book that I I almost want want you to sort of throw across the room and then for two weeks you're still trying to process it and come to terms with with what happens. Uh, So if I've hit that mark, that's satisfying. The thing that I think possibly was actually more satisfying than seeing the book on the shelf was when the audio version came out. Um, And the reason for that is I I do my own audio books. I do the the recording myself. And this one just lends itself so well to that because it's it's spoken in a voice. I mean, it's similar to mine. The main character is like 39, 40 years old. Uh, He's a father. He's talking about his family. And it's done in the first person. So Um, When I recorded the book, I actually, I kind of got choked up a couple of times. And there are one or two instances where I left that in the recording because it worked so well. I thought, you know, okay, let's, if we're going to manipulate the the audience, let's just do it all out. Um, And when that came out, that to me was something just a little special. I I love that theater of the mind. Uh, I love having uh, the audio side of stories.
0: Yeah, that is essentially a bit of theatre. That is like radio play, essentially. Yeah, very
1: much so, yeah. And some books really just lend themselves to to being told as stories out loud. And I think this one very very much did.
0: Um, I watched your YouTube channel um, before and I really liked the video um, when you say how to scare yourself into achieving your goal. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I feel like writers, I mean, we have goals, but it's like it feels so far because just the idea of yeah. writing a book and just doing that and planning it just feels really far and one thing that really got chilled, I got chills hearing this and uh, one of your steps was the final one is, were they right about you and I'm thinking oh that's so true because it's yeah. like you've got people who look <laughs> at think no I don't think this is an idea or you know she's been writing for how many years now where is it and it's like do you mm-hmm. give up or do you just keep going
1: yeah, it's quite quite the horrifying spur, isn't it? But I mean, that's it gets right down to like where you are, and says, are, are you going to be who you are out loud? You, you've got a shot at it. Go for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, it's a it's a terrifying way to scare yourself into accomplishing your goals.
0: Definitely. Well, I really I really think that I'm going to be scared and <laughs> <complete laughs> achieving my goal. <laughs> yeah. um, so this book is available on Kindle and Audible and to. Uh,
1: purchase yeah it's it's a bit of a weird one the paperback is a, is available in in south africa and it's coming out in different territories but i don't have sort of dates or times for that okay. um, because it was accepted by by penguin first in south africa and then they kind of distribute to other places which which is unusual uh normally you'd start with a london or a new york and kind of go from there uh, but yeah so the ebook is available globally the audiobook globally um and and as time goes by the paperback will be in in stores somewhere (laughs) and i I don't really know yet
0: okay so it's like a pre-virtual book tour for yeah wherever it comes out in the uk and america and okay yeah we'll keep an eye out for it lovely thank you and good luck with all your other projects as well Um, thank you so much also um what do you hope that people can take away from this book
1: Different. I I want this one uh, y- you know you mentioned that that idea of being sort of scared into accomplishing your goals I want this one to go right down to where people are this is kind of a, a cut away everything and go what matters in life? What matters in the universe? And it's one of those books that I hope gets through to you. Um, if I'm doing my job right, you will look up from the pages, and the world around you will seem like a foreign place because you've been somewhere that is close, that matters, that is intimate. And I wanted to haunt you for a couple of weeks after that.
0: Okay. So that's <laughs> your answer. The audience was going to get haunted.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes, there you go.
0: I was also going to say um when we were talking about your writing um, about sort of different. Horrors and thrillers and locations. I mean, why not set something in Jersey?
1: Oh <laughs> yes, you know that's quite an interesting idea. So the first one, as I said, it's kind of um, it's agnostic. I mean, it could be could be anywhere geographically agnostic. Uh, the second one starts off in in the UK and moves to Texas. The third one starts in South Africa and goes to California. Uh, and the fourth one is sort of global. It, it, it starts in London and goes all over the world. But yes, I've been playing with the idea of, you know, what, what could you do if your character was limited to a small island? Yeah. Um, and and I'm, I'm very keen on doing that. I just don't quite know what to do with it yet. Uh, and I find, and I'm sure you've seen this as well, uh, books or, or stories are often the combination of two sort of thought processes co- colliding with each other. So at the moment, I've, I've got this one idea about the sort of small island and no escape from it. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, I'm playing with certain scenarios in my head and kind of going, do those fit together? So we'll, we'll see, but, that, but it's a good idea.
0: Well, if anyone's confused as to what we're talking about, why I suddenly just said Jersey, it's because yeah. before before we started recording, um, we found out, we, well, we're actually, when we we're organising the interview, I thought that Douglas was in America for some reason, or he <laughs> thought I was in New York, and he was like, what's the time zone? Then we found out we we're both in the UK, but yeah. I'm in London, and uh, he's actually and I'm in Germany.
1: Jersey. Yeah. And then there
0: was a conversation of, well, is it UK? It is, but it's also yeah. Channel Island, and Yeah. So that's why I know it sounds pretty really random, but, and then I said that I'm, I'm writing a novel uh, set in the Regency era set in my own made up channel island. Cause you know, you can <laughs> do that. <laughs> and so then we were talking about like the narrow streets and all that kind of stuff. And I kind of yeah. thought like, if you're going to set something location wise, it's quite-
1: Yes, makes a fantastic setting. I mean, it's so different to me, I mean, you know, South Africa uh, geographically is a little bit like a sort of a Texas. It's hot and dry and big with huge amounts of open space. And this is the exact opposite. It's tiny, it's intimate, it's green. Um, it's very sort of uh, it's supposedly a combination of British and French, but it's really much more British than it is French, um, and it, it's sort of charming in a in an old worldy kind of way. So it's it's definitely an evocative setting, and it's a lovely place to set a story.
0: And, and during the, the pandemic, I mean, were you there during the pandemic and during lockdown?
1: Mm. We came through, we had this sort of small window where we were allowed to, to come over. We spent our first 10 days in quarantine. Uh, we've only been here for eight going on nine months now. Uh, so yeah, this, this is still our first year.
0: So because they don't have their, do they have their own rules as to isolation? Yeah, they do. It's,
1: it, it roughly follows the UK, uh, but we are, as you said, a crown dependency. So we're under the British Crown, but not under the UK Parliament. We have our, our own government here, um, and because it's a small island, they can, you know, they can track things easily. And they've actually been very open with things. They've they've gotten rid of a lot of the sort of the masks and mandates and so forth. Uh, and I think it's wonderful. It's it's freeing up very quickly, which is which is lovely.
0: Oh, it sounds lovely. I would love, yeah, I want to visit Jersey and Guernsey and all the...
1: If you do, give me a shout and I'll give you the tour. Of
0: course. Thank you so much, Douglas. Thank you for coming on the show. And I'll put links to all of the description all of your... Great uh, pleasure.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thanks, guys. We'll see you in the next one. Bye.
1: No cool step. Cheers.